peace to you, friends, by the power of the Holy Spirit who is ever at work through the word of Jesus. Amen. I had an interesting comment on one of my recent messages. In fact, it kind of dealt with the last two messages uh, that we had here at church. And before I get into this particular comment, I just want to say thank you to all of you. As a, a fairly new preacher still for very kind comments that you've given me uh, throughout my time here so far. Um, you've all been very kind to me about my sermons. More than that, what I really want to appreciate, what I really want to thank people for, is that I've heard a lot of comments that showed me that people are thinking about my messages, that, that people are, are listening, paying attention, considering, applying it to themselves, uh, you all know I come from a teaching background, right, that I was a teacher while I was at seminary, uh, that I, I enjoy teaching, and as a preacher, I still find myself kind of slipping into that teaching mode, where I want to make sure that I'm handing over something that people think about, chew on a little bit, ask some questions regarding. This comment uh, that I got showed that someone was thinking over my sermons, chewing them over, really, really thinking about what I had said, thinking about God's word, how it applied to their lives, the comment was this. There wasn't a whole lot of law in those last couple sermons, was there? Yeah, and it's an interesting comment because it shows uh, two things. One, that there's someone who's really thinking through my messages, thinking about them. Two, it shows that there's somebody out there who's thinking about some, some very fundamental doctrines of scripture, law, gospel. And it gives me the opportunity, I think I want to talk a little bit this morning about law as a, a specific biblical doctrine. So again, this comment came after our last two messages. We're working through Jesus' Maundy Thursday evening discourse with his disciples. Uh, from the Last Supper up until his arrest, roughly John chapter 13, right around the beginning there, all the way through the end of John chapter 17, Jesus is speaking, talking, talking, talking with his disciples. And he spends much of that time that evening encouraging them, consoling them, supporting them, comforting them, getting them ready for his upcoming departure, right? Is what he refers to. First, his death, obviously, which is going to take place the next day. But then after Easter as well, he's getting them ready for his return to heaven on ascension 40 days later after that. So Jesus spends this, this whole evening speaking these words of comfort, peace, assurance to them. And it's out of the two messages I delivered on two portions of that that those comments came. So two weeks ago, we looked at a section of John chapter 14. We talked about Jesus encouraging his disciples and encouraging us to pray, to pray boldly, to pray together. He fills that section with these beautiful words about our relationship with the Father about our relationship with one another. And it's all comfort. It's all encouragement. But at the same time, it's not that there's law missing there necessarily. Because Jesus is telling us to do something, to pray boldly to the Father with other Christians. Whenever we read a message in Scripture from God about what it is that we human beings are supposed to do in relation to him and in relation to one another, that is a law message. Even when it's backed up by those promises and that encouragement, it's law. When God tells us, respond to my message in this way, pray, 
pray boldly with me, pray with others. That's law. That wasn't missing two weeks ago. Last week, John chapter 15, Jesus speaks to his disciples about being the vine off of which they grow as branches. And again, this section meant to comfort, encourage, strengthen, console those believers in advance of his death on the cross, meant to remind them that, that they are connected to him, that he gives them life, that he produces fruit through them, these, these beautiful words. And he does end it with what's, again, technically a law message. He tells them to love one another. Law wasn't missing from either of those messages. At any time that we hear a message in scripture that tells us what we should do, even when it's a message that's grounded on the gospel, right? The gospel being the good news of God's love shown for us in what Jesus has done. That's the gospel. Even when that message is given on that basis, it's still law. But I think this comment came about not incorrectly still, because as Lutherans, and I'm a Lutheran, and I really like being a Lutheran, we often have a very narrow technical definition of law, you might say. And that, that narrow Lutheran technical definition of law would think of law as something like the message from Scripture, which reminds us that we are sinners, unworthy and undeserving of God's love, condemned as guilty in his holy eyes. That particular kind of law was not in these last two texts. And it's still not there as we pick up in the gospel reading today, as we pick up in this section of John chapter 16 we're reading. Because as this text begins, Jesus is still comforting the disciples here. He's still encouraging them. He's telling them, look, things are about to get really difficult, really, really trial and tribulation filled. But that this pain and anguish that they're going to go through when they see him die, those three days that they'll spend wondering what's going to happen next, well, I'll be worth it. And he uses this striking metaphor, right, to do so. A woman giving birth to a child has pain, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Still encouragement, right? Still, still comfort, still consoling and strengthening those disciples as he prepares to die. And isn't it just crazy when you really step back and think about what he's doing there, right? As he prepares to suffer for the sins of the whole world the next day, as he prepares to be abandoned by God, his father, this relationship that he has had with his father from all eternity for a time to be torn asunder. He's thinking about the disciples suffering. Relatively minor, but it means the world to him. And it finally seems to click for them, right? Verse 30. Now we can see, they say, that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus, we get it. We finally understand your words of comfort, encouragement. We see your power. We believe you. Jesus sucker punches them. He hits them now with that kind of solidly Lutheran law that has seemed to be missing in this evening's discourse. Verse 31, do you now believe? Jesus asked them. 
A time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. It's an odd choice that our Bible translation makes there using the word home. What Jesus literally says in Greek is you will be scattered each one toward the things that belong to him. And you see maybe where that idea of home is in there, but the particular point Jesus is making is this. When he, humanly speaking, most needs from them what he has been giving them all night, companionship, comfort, encouragement, they will leave him. They will be looking out for themselves. They will be saving their own skins, each one looking after his own interests, saving his own skin, despite all the love that he has shown them, despite all the comfort he has been pouring out on them this night, they will not stay with him. Some will hide, some will deny him, all will run away. Here's that hard-hitting, no-getting-around-it law, which we're confronted with in this text. We are so thoroughly corrupted by sin that even the shocking, undeserved love of God cannot stop us from sinning. We look at the disciples' sin, which Jesus predicts here, and we understand two things to be happening. One, we see human friends abandoning a human friend at the time when he most needed them, when the going gets tough. Eleven human beings are abandoning another human being who loves them and they love him to look out for their own skins. Second thing we see happening, these human beings are turning away from their God. They are rejecting his promises to care for them, to protect them and be with them. Each of them is running away to look after their own interests. They don't trust the words that he's spoken them tonight, that he will protect them, that he will care for them. If we don't see ourselves in the disciples' reactions here, we're lying to ourselves. John the Apostle, who recorded these words, who ran away that night, tried to sneak back, ran away again when he was seen, wrote in the letter we call 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves. You think maybe he knew what he was talking about when he wrote those words after this night? I think he just might. If we don't see ourselves as the disciples abandon a friend who needs them, we deceive ourselves. If we don't see ourselves as the disciples run away from their God to look after their own interests, we're lying to ourselves. And we know that we can see ourselves in them because we understand what it is that they did. We rationalize it. We can understand the case that they would make for their actions, right? Jesus seemingly intends to let himself be arrested. Why stick around? Jesus chose us to be the ones who would share his message. Well, we can't very well do that if we die with him, can we? If we understand the disciples, it's because we are sinners like the disciples. We do understand. We understand what they understood that night, that the world is a hard, confusing, scary place for a believer. We understand that they were afraid. We understand that they didn't know what else they could do. How could they? We understand that that doesn't matter. Sin is sin. They abandoned a friend. They didn't trust their God. Why does Jesus tell them that they're going to do this? Why does he tell them this is going to happen? Because he's bitter in this moment? Because he wants to hurt them as he knows they're going to hurt him and their betrayal later? No. Jesus tells them, tells us why he lets them know that this is going to happen. Verse 33. 
I have told you these things about what you're going to do so that you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. If that law preaching to them was a sucker punch, then this is, I don't know, what is the opposite of a sucker punch, a sucker kiss? Jesus is telling the disciples that he knows they will abandon him so that they have peace. That doesn't make sense, does it? How will Jesus' words about their sin bring them peace? Jesus knew what his disciples were going to do. Jesus knew that they would abandon him in his hour of need. Jesus knew that he would face his death humanly alone, although as he remarks, he knows that the Father is with him. He knew that he would face his death disowned by one of his closest friends within earshot, right? I tell you the truth, I don't know the man and the rooster crows. Jesus sees him. Jesus knew that these things were coming. He went to his cross knowing it. He died knowing these things. He died because he knew these things. Our sins against our friends, our evil words, our unloving actions. Jesus knew them that night. Our sins against him, our God, our lack of trust, our God-denying self-confidence. Jesus knew these things that night, and he went to be whipped, struck, spat upon, humiliated, crucified, knowing all these things. He knew these sins which you have committed, commit, will commit, which are so understandable because of this wicked world, this hard world in which we live, and yet are no less sinful for the fact that we can understand them. He knew these things. So that night, he told his disciples about the sin that they would commit. So that you, sinner, could have peace. No sin of yours was unknown to your Savior as he went to his cross. No secret transgression, no open rebellion has ever surprised the God who died in your place. He went to his cross because he knew of these things. It is because he knew that you needed a Savior that he came to this earth. If you're not a sinner, he's not your Savior. If you are a sinner... He is the Savior who loves you, who has always known you, the Savior who died for you, the Savior who lives to guarantee your eternal life, your peace. Our reading from Romans emphasized this. Those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. God foreknew you. He chose you. You have been his from eternity. And when that eternal plan to work out your salvation arrived at that Thursday evening, the night before Jesus would die, he was there looking after his own. Not his own interests his own brothers and sisters. He was looking after you. He still is. Amen.